in 2004, Steven Spielberg followed up his hit Catch Me If You Can with a film called The Terminal. It concerned a man stuck for months in New York's JFK airport. Praised for its inventive set and empathetic lead performance by Tom Hanks, it was generally considered to be a slight bit of whimsy in terms of Spielberg's career. It turns out that, unmentioned by the producers, this had been inspired by the strange real-life story of Mehran Karimi Nasiri, who really had lived in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris for several years. It turns out these events inspired an earlier French film, Tombe du Ciel, and even an opera by British composer Jonathan Dove in 1999. A story so odd, it must be unique, must it? It turns out, lightning strikes twice when it comes to people finding themselves in such a situation. How did someone last seven months in the Kuala Lumpur airport in the secure environment of the 21st century? The Canadian connection to a real-life sequel to the Hollywood story. The strange story of what happened to Joseph Haydn's head. And the musical journey of Kimberly Ann Bartzak. All on this episode of Culture Monster. Hello everyone, I am Jonathan Gressel, and welcome back to Culture Monster, the podcast that devours the arts. Spring has sprung, and after a brief pause, the sea monster is preparing a whole bunch of new episodes. Many thanks to those listeners who have supported the podcast through the page at buymeacoffee.com slash culturemonster. If you do go there, you might just find some early news about the podcast, and unique bonus content. If movies are of interest, stay tuned for my tour through the complete films of master animator, Japanese filmmaker, Hayao Miyazaki, the main creative force behind Studio Ghibli. You can find that and more at buymeacoffee.com slash culturemonster. Lots of interesting stuff for today, although I should mention that my interviews are recorded remotely and are unscripted. There is some slight editing to remove some tangential remarks or my tendency to pause questions with mm and you know. They are done essentially live with one take. I mention this because due to a slight microphone setting malfunction, the audio quality of today's episode is not quite sterling. I suppose this is what you get when you write, produce, and edit the show yourself. It's a bit embarrassing since today's guest, Kim Bartzak of Pacific Opera Victoria, or POV, someone I've worked with in the past, having played in the pit for a project she conducted back in 2019. She had lots of interesting things to say. Please be sure to stay until the end to catch her wonderful recommendations of recent operatic music to listen to. Hopefully we'll find a way for a repeat appearance. On the plus side, you get a double dose of Culture Monster Recommends today. Something to listen to, and something to read. Music meant to disappear, but brought back to life. Culture Monster recommends a new album of choral music, featuring compositions by Artem Vedel. 
one of the greatest Ukrainian composers of the late 1700s. His music was eventually banned, and the Tsar locked him up in an insane asylum and stopped him from composing. It appears that only one manuscript of his work still exists. The Spiritus Chamber Choir and Luminous Voices have been performing and recording Vedel's work for years, and now this collection is now available, bringing this once almost unknown music back to glorious life. The story of the terminal is strange, but it turns out not to be unique. Wikipedia has an entire article about people who have lived in airports. Back in 2006, an Iranian woman and her two children ended up in a Moscow airport for the better part of a year before being accepted as refugees in Canada. There is even a more recent story with a Canadian connection. The story of Hassan al-Kantar. Al-Kantar was born in Syria and moved to the United Arab Emirates, where he was a salesman. In 2011, the Syrian civil war started. At the same year, his work permit expired. He stayed in the UAE, fearing he would be drafted into the Syrian army. In 2017, he was arrested and, after a number of strange events, ended up in Malaysia. After he started tweeting about his life stuck in the Kuala Lumpur airport, various news organizations picked up the story. Alcantar gave an interview to CBC Radio's As It Happens. This led to a group in Whistler to work on his behalf. Eventually, the Canadian government intervened in the case, and Alcantar now lives in British Columbia, where he continues to advocate for refugees. CBC Radio brought back this story recently because Alcantar has written a memoir about his experiences. It's called Man at the Airport, How Social Media Saved My Life. His powerful account tells of a man caught in a bizarre Catch-22 situation and how he was able to use his only weapon, his cell phone, to successfully get out and start a new life. The book is out now, published by Tidebarter Press. Link in the show notes. It is sometimes thought that great artists make their work through pain and potential misery. People like Beethoven and Schumann certainly led complicated and difficult lives. French composer Darius Mieux was often mentioned as an exception to this rule. He even titled his autobiography, My Happy Life. Another is a composer associated with the classical period, Joseph Haydn. Father of the symphony, father of the string quartet, Papa Haydn had no legitimate children, however, and it turns out the truth is a bit more complicated. Joseph Haydn led a life that started in modest circumstances, going occasionally hungry to a steady job as a uniformed servant to one of the great aristocratic families of the Austrian Empire, to finally independent celebrity and wealth as the world's greatest composer, living in Vienna and gaining much glory and cash on two long trips to London. A life of much success and happiness, surely. 
but not everything was perfect. In 1760, Haydn married Maria Anna Theresia Keller. Legend has it, he was actually in love with her younger sister. It is clear it was not a happy union. Legend again tells the story of Madame Haydn using her husband's compositions, written on parchment, for baking purposes. While that story is unconfirmed, to be honest, it's in the category stories too good to check, we do know that both Haydn's essentially agreed to live apart. In their Catholic society, of course, divorce was forbidden. Mrs. Haydn took up with a painter, and Joseph had a long relationship with Lugia Buzzelli, a singer who had arrived at the Esterhazy court with her violinist husband in 1779. It has been suggested that they were not the highest quality musicians, but that the prince kept them on as a tacit favor to his talented music director Haydn. Eventually that relationship cooled off. During his years of celebrity in Vienna, Haydn had other attachments, even one mistress in England whom he courted during his two long journeys there. What does this have to do with Haydn's tomb? Well, not much exactly, but that is a fascinating tale in itself. When Haydn died in 1809, Napoleon's troops were occupying Vienna, and Europe was at war. Therefore, the great composer was given a relatively modest burial in the local parish. A few days after the burial, the grave was dug up, and the head removed. Two associates of the Esterhazy family paid off a gravedigger so they could examine the skull and keep it as a trophy of genius. It seems they were both interested in the pseudoscience of phrenology, which held that various bumps in the skull were associated with traits in a person's behavior or skill. This might have gone unnoticed, but in 1820, Nicholas II, Haydn's last patron, remembered his promise to rebury the great composer at his estate in Eisenstadt. When he discovered the skull was missing, he tried to get it back, but the thieves tricked him and gave him another skull instead. Eventually, the skull landed into the collection of the Viennese Society of Friends of Music. It wasn't until 1954 that the skull was reunited with the rest of the composer's remains. The decision was made not to remove the other skull, leaving the tomb with two skulls. excerpt of Haydn's vocal setting of a portion of a poem by Johann Goltz, Harmony in Marriage, which includes the line, what he desires, she desires as well. My guest today has already made music across this country, with an education from Concordia University, the University of Toronto, the Vancouver Opera Young Artist Program, and positions with Opera on the Avalon, the Bicycle Opera Project, Manitoba Underground Opera, the Calgary Opera, and currently Pacific Opera Victoria. Kimberly Ann Bartzak joins me for a fascinating conversation about her own musical journey and making opera in Canada. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but let's start at the beginning. Where did your journey in music start? 
So my musical journey really started when I was at a very, very young age. I started playing piano at the age of three and a half. Uh, being the youngest of four kids, we all played piano, we played violin. I also played a little bit of flute, took some guitar lessons, took some voice lessons on the side just to kind of dab my toes into many things. But piano is really, really my main instrument. Even though I never went to a music specialized high school or elementary school, uh, we went to a music school on the weekends. So I was the generic music nerd that went to uh, music school on Friday evenings and Saturdays all day. And I loved it. Although, if you talked to any of my high school friends, none of them knew that I played piano. It was kind of like this double identity that I had when, you know, if I would miss school because I did a lot of piano competitions, uh, people would ask, oh, why, didn't you, why weren't you at school yesterday? And I said, oh, I wasn't feeling too well. I wouldn't actually tell them that I drove up to Rimouski with my mom and played a piano competition and then drove back in the middle of the night. Was it not cool then? I, I feel bad because now I'm like super proud of it. I played a lot of sports as well, so I kind of wanted everyone to think of me as the, the, the sporty one instead of the music one. At university, was music definitely the goal at, when you first went to university? No. When I finished high school, I decided, I guess because I, had, I felt like I had this double life in a way, I stopped playing music uh, for about four or five years. I, I still played choir for you know the local community choir on the south shore of Montreal. I did an undergraduate degree in mathematics. I originally wanted to become an actuarian because I really like numbers. And then by the end of my second year, I realized that it just kind of wasn't the lifestyle for me. And I decided to kind of, oh, maybe I'll just take you know a few music classes on the side, help with my GPA. When I took those music classes, I realized that that was really the path that I wanted to be in. So I finished my math degree. I did my music degree at Concordia University. So it was actually a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And then I did a diploma in, in piano performance. And I kind of always wanted to become a conductor, but I never felt like I had the right path in a way. Being a pianist, you don't really get to play with orchestras that often unless you play as a soloist. My teacher at the time had told me, well, why don't you go into an opera school or do a master's in opera accompaniment? I said, oh, that would be kind of cool. So I applied for my master's at University of Toronto in collaborative piano at the age of 29. So I was a, a late bloomer and saw my first opera ever at that time with my teacher, Stephen Philcox. And that really changed my life. I realized that opera was where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. What opera was that? Iphigenie en Tauride, uh, which was by Gluck, which is not exactly the most conventional first opera that people would go see. So it kind of just made me realize, okay, if, this, if I'm hooked on this, I'm clearly hooked on, on it all. <laughs> There's so much to talk about conducting, but let's just back up a second because I'm fascinated by this mathematics thing. Do you think yeah. that mathematics was interesting for the same reason that music was interesting, that there was a, a real connection there? Or was it that it was something totally different? No, I really do think there's a connection. With the pandemic, what I've really loved doing is doing some audio editing. I find that that's actually kind of going into my whole mathematical world. Even though it's not really numbers, it's still 
sine waves and cosine waves that you can really be able to see firsthand how mathematics and music are linked together. People would ask me all the time, oh, well, you know, math and music, there's so much in common. Yes, they, there are a lot of things in common, but it's also not common. You have the, the same example, four beat pattern, mathematical structure of, you know, whole note, half note, quarter note. The whole artistic and performance and interpretation side is not mathematical. So you can really kind of, you feel like they're very much together, but then at the same time, they're very much not. I do think that many fine musicians do have an innate sense of proportion, which helps. But an equation is not a performance. No, not at all. You know, it's a performance is very much in in the moment and vibrant and alive, where you cannot replicate the same thing twice. Whereas a mathematical equation, you can. So you were at uh, the University of Toronto. You were working with singers. What is that? like sort of coaching singers? I mean, how much music is there or is this more psychology and teaching? Um, how do you balance those things? One thing that I absolutely love about coaching is, you know, really kind of diving into the interpretation that the singer wants. I'm all about if the performance is alive and vibrant, then nothing else matters. It's It doesn't matter if you on the paper, it was a full note, and you kind of just shortchanged it to make sure that you had the breath. If it's energetic, that's that's so much more important. One thing that I find really hard with singers is all their lives, they're kind of told, oh, you know, you're singing the wrong rhythm, you're, not, you're singing the wrong vowel, it should be eh instead of uh. These are very, very minute things, which is important, because obviously we want to be able to understand the language. But then at the same time, it just kind of breaks down ever so slightly self-esteem, self-confidence. And I think as a coach, my main goal is to make their, you know, their ideas as an artist be in the forefront. Yes, obviously, you have to have all the training in the background. But at the end of the day, if you have something to say, that's what's most important. If you have nothing to say, but it's perfect, then it won't actually register if my hair at the end of the day from a performance is able to kind of stand on its end because they touched me, I think that's so important. On uh, previous episodes of the podcast, I spoke with, with guests about the old European way of conductor training, which involved the opera house, becoming a vocal coach, becoming a repetitor, becoming assistant conductor. Do you think that that exists nowadays in Canada or what kind of path is there? How did you, how did you move along from university to um, the professional world? That's actually really interesting because I do feel that I am following that traditional path. It's my best way of learning the repertoire, getting to work with conductors, also working with chorus master, seeing how directors work with 50 people in a room. And then really telling myself, registering what works, what doesn't work, what would I have done differently without actually having that pressure of being on the podium and making those mistakes or making those, those decisions. So to me, I find that that's actually a, a great path to go through. I know that I'm definitely one of the few that are going down that way, uh, just because in university programs, they are conducting programs. I realized that that actually kind of wasn't the path that I needed because I wanted to really just learn the, the repertoire by feeling it 
within me by being able to play it and really getting into the nitty gritty of it uh, instead of instead of sitting down in a you know in an office and studying for eight hours. I'm very much not the personality that sits down and studies for eight hours. I know that there's so many conductors that that, that do that and it works really well for them, but for me it just it just doesn't. I get I get bored. <laughs> I I get distracted. I kind of realize, oh, you know, what if I were to play this? Oh, I wish I was playing it with someone else. I, I would love to hear how the singer would interpret this line if they would breathe in this place instead of that place. So so to me, you know, the, that traditional format really works well. And I, I will say that it has given me quite a few opportunities that way. You know, I was the resident conductor at Calgary Opera for three years. I got to conduct ghost opera to which you were in the orchestra uh, at that time and you know and I thought that it worked really well together. I've also another opportunity that I got that I'm extremely thankful for at Opera in the Avalon. I was on staff as their repetitor and head coach for about five or six years and one year the conductor had we were doing Sound of Music and she had asked me hey you know do you want to conduct the Sunday, Sunday matinee show? You know me having been in rehearsals for that whole three-week process gave me the chance to know the score so well, to know exactly what the singers were going to do. She gave me that chance to be able to do that. And I, I really think that because I had that path of pianist and, you know, that I was her assistant conductor, that she trusted me into giving me that chance. Take us into the mind of the rehearsal. So let's say we're at the auditorium, it's a dress rehearsal. The music director is conducting. You are in the audience taking it in. How can you describe what that is like through your eyes? What are you, what are you seeing that perhaps the general audience member is not seeing? Oh, well, I, <laughs> it's a very good question. I, I can just imagine, you know, obviously at the dress rehearsal or the last orchestra tech, you know, the lights are completely out. The only person or the only, let, let's say, five people that are in the hall that have the lights on you know, it's the director, the sound design to make sure that he has the book and myself, because I'm going through the score and making any notes of wrong diction. If the singer is purposefully sing, uh, breathing in those spots or, you know, actually wanting to take that much time to kind of give the notes to the conductor and then some last minute notes for the conductor. This spot, you know, it didn't seem like the strings and the horns were together, you know, maybe just revisit that before opening night or something like that. I will say that I get... I, I don't get stressed, but I do kind of, if the same mistakes kind of happen, it's, I've been told that my face doesn't lie, that, you know, if something goes wrong, like, I, you can see it right away in my face. I do remember a singer telling me at the, after, I think it was after an orchestra dress, so it was, like, completely dark, but you only had the light, like, you can only really see one of my lights, the stand, and then you, the singer came to me, and he was just like, Kim, I'm really sorry, and I was just like, what? He's just like, I made the same mistake in rehearsals and here I am making an orchestra tech again. And all I could see was your shoulders just slump. And then you take out your pen and write a note down, knowing very well that that note was going to come to me. <laughs> Obviously, no audience member would come to the show with the score thinking, oh, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. The singer should have done this and said, oh, this is a little bit faster than what I thought. You know, the audience comes to enjoy the experience. At the end of the day, I, I really just kind of work on those little details. 
I will say that one thing that I've noticed that I really, really enjoy is two years ago when I came to POV and I, uh, I guested repping Fidelio. Yeah, it was Fidelio. They, I had repped the show and then I had to go back to Calgary and I flew back to watch one of the shows because by then I was, I had to be back in Calgary for work. And the time that I left for orchestra dress and then their last show, I want to say maybe it was about 11 days later, I, not that I had completely forgotten, but I had just kind of put all of those mistakes and all of those things that needed to be addressed in the back of my mind. And I just sat and I watched as an audience member and I was completely blown away. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. And then realizing that I had been part of something so magical in that moment that it kind of just makes you realize that that's what's most important. When you are on the podium, how much of your energy is spent thinking about those things? Or what, what are you thinking about during the actual performance? My answer will totally tell you that I'm a young conductor. You know, if somebody makes the same mistake over and over again, that will be the only thing that I think about. Whereas, and, I, and I've talked to many conductors about this, and they're just like, you have to learn to let it go because you have to be in the moment because the next moment would be something super magical and you'll have missed it because you're just kind of honing in on something that happened 20 bars from uh, ago. It's definitely something that I know that I need to work on and just kind of, okay, it happened, it's done, on to the next thing, and let's make the next thing, you know, great. Uh, the other thing also that I think about a lot is I really do think that I'm, I'm very much more of an opera conductor than an orchestral conductor. I try to breathe with the singer as much as possible because they're, they're quite exposed all the time, right? That if I'm able to make sure that they feel at most comfortable with the music, if I'm able to kind of guide them in that direction, then it's one thing less that they have to worry about. As much as I, I try to make sure that the orchestra kind of stays all together, I really do focus on the singer as much as possible. That part of the opera conductor's job is to make things as comfortable as possible for the singers. Exactly. And I, th and I do think that that's really important. From one show to the next, things will happen differently. You realize when they're going to come off that high C a little bit sooner than, you know, than yesterday. They're going to hold it much longer than the day before. That you're there with them and always reacting to what they need. Do you have a sense for that because you know these singers? Or are singers just too unpredictable in performance? <laughs> well, because I, you know, I, I work almost uniquely with singers, I can now tell based on... You can really hear it in the spin of their sound and by the breath support. The less of a breath support that they have, the less of a good breath that they do, like you can feel that the sound just got, starts getting tighter and tighter. And you can, you can hear that, oh, they're also going to run out of breath a little bit sooner, so I want to kind of land on that downbeat with them. I think I've, I've just over the years, like my ear just kind of really hones in on that. You mentioned the ghost opera from a couple of years back, which was a yeah. brand new piece. I wonder how different is your attitude towards preparing something which has never been done before versus an old, an old favorite? I love new opera. Um, the idea of getting to work with a composer and really being able to ask them what their intention was not that there's less room for interpretation, but there's also kind of more room for a, a conversation to be had 
one thing that I really, really like with Veronica Krausis, who's the composer for, for, for Ghost Opera, was we, we would talk about some certain passages and I would kind of, we would talk, oh, uh, we would talk about a certain passage and I would ask her, oh, you know, like, wh what did you, what were you thinking when you wrote this? Why this instrument? You know, she, she was all about um, a lot of extended techniques in the voice and with the instruments. And, you know, she would really tell me. And then, you know, sometimes I would tell, I would ask her, oh, like, that's interesting because I thought it, I would be, I would think that it was because of such and such reason. And sometimes she would agree. And other times she'd be like, oh, well, actually, no, no, I really want it this way. So it just kind of makes it more, just more black and white in that sense of knowing exactly what she wanted. Uh, another thing that was really interesting is with Ghost Opera, we used the emerging artists. For, as our singers for the program, uh, for the for the opera, and some of them were really really comfortable with her extended techniques, and others were not. And what she was able to do is she would able she would adapt that moment or you know that musical passage to the singer's needs. Whereas you know a lot of other times, if it's a piece that had been written over two hundred years ago, Mozart's Magic Flute. Queen of the Night aria. If you don't have those high Fs, you can't sing it. You're not going to sing it down the octave. Like that's just what it has to be. <laughs> I tend to go closer to um, to really enjoy new works more than the traditionals. You know that doesn't mean that I don't love playing a bohème. Like I can play a bohème every day, all day, and it's really it's really fascinating to see different conductors' interpretation of the piece. You know, some of them will do. You know, even just beat patterns. Some of them will do a passage in three, others will do it in one. And it just kind of, it really changed the flow of the piece. And that, that I find quite fascinating. There's no wrong answer either. And so do you feel that freedom makes it more exciting or, or more scary? Uh, <laughs> oh, I think it's a bit of both. <laughs> I think excitement is scary because it makes you vulnerable. You spoke about being introduced to opera not as a young person not as a young not as a very young person that is the case for many many people they don't know opera necessarily if you wanted to invite someone to an opera what do you tell them what is so great about it so many things and then they would tell me to stop talking and let's go to the opera but <laughs> um i think the first especially to a non-opera goer or it'd be their first time going to the opera i would first tell them the synopsis especially because in most operas English is not the language that it's sung in and and then telling also the audience member that there are subtitles so that way they can always follow exactly what is happening I try not to kind of get too much in the nitty gritty of the story I'll try to at least maybe just give one or two really fascinating tidbits about the piece for example in Elixir of Love, the only, only time you hear the harp play is in Una Fortiva, which is Nemorino's aria that's almost at the end of the opera. To me, I find that really fascinating because it's the only, it's the only time that the harp plays. The harp is sitting in the pit for almost two hours to just play this one piece. And the harp is also just such a, a lush, it's very romantic. It just kind of has these big flowy sounds to it that it, it really depicts the emotion that Nemorino is in that moment. One thing that I've, I've noticed for feedback is that when I say that to someone, they'll always come at the end of the show, they'll be like, oh yeah, I really, 
I really listened to the harp. I could really hear it at that moment. What I find fascinating is if you just give one or two little pieces of information that can give them a connection to the piece, then it makes it all that much more interesting because it connects them to what they're about to listen to. And then, you know, the second time that they listen to it again, they might hear something completely different. I am curious about that. So if you've gone to your 12th Bohem, what might you catch from being so infused into it and knowing it more, more thoroughly? Like, how might that increase your enjoyment? I will say that when I go to the opera, I try not to bring the conductor, repetitor, knowledge of Bohem hat with me. Because then I feel like kind of just think oh that per- you know oh that was a little bit out of tune oh they're singing the wrong bell and i think that i find that that actually kind of deters from enjoying the the evening so i try not to do that as much as possible i what i love seeing is how the singer will interpret it in their own fashion if they you know if you really do see a love between um mimi and rodolfo do you do you really find do you can I really feel that magic between the two of them? Do they you know, at the end of the evening when she dies and all the friends are around her, do we really like am I one of those friends that's that's sitting at the edge of the bed that feels that loss for her? If I feel that, then that I will be going back to seeing that exact same show. That touched me. If it didn't as much, I might be like, uh, maybe I won't go see this cast again. I'll go see a different cast. I'll go see a 13th poem somewhere else. <laughs> that is, it's the emotional hit, which is the, the most important part for you. Oh, 100%. 100%. You mentioned the uh, surtitles, where the, the translation is presented above the stage, the words. How important are those? I mean, I've read that when they first were introduced, which wasn't that long ago, really, it was not a universally beloved idea. No, none whatsoever. Um, and, and I think that there's still a stigma to it. What I love about them is it's made opera more accessible. For those that don't, under, don't necessarily understand Italian or German, they can still be able to understand what is happening because of those surtitles. So I do, I do think that, that it's important in that way. And what I... Really good surtitle lists, I guess, is what they... And Calgary Opera does this very, very well. They keep it very short and concise. They don't get into the, it's not the word for word translation. It's kind of a a poetic translation. So you can read it and then go straight back to the stage. And I do think that that's, that's really important because then you're not, you're listening to the music, but then you're also being able to watch what's happening instead of always being distracted by reading surtitles. You've been involved in opera in, in Canada in a number of different places, and you've, you've seen a lot of opera in Canada, and you've worked with a lot of companies in Canada. How would you describe the scene in the sense that, I mean, is opera in Canada in a healthy, a healthy place right now? Is it, I mean, is it a, an exciting place, you think? I think so, but that's also because I'm in it. But I like I think that there's so many passionate people that are in opera. Once you, when you're surrounded by those people, it just kind of makes you want to do it more. One thing that I've noticed, we're very much more in the social media world. The next generation are adapting to it extremely well. 
one thing that I was really fortunate to participate in is, um, at Pacific Opera this year is they uh, they developed a small program called the Civic Engage the Civic Engagement Quartet. What we did is we gave each singer twenty minutes where they created their own music video. They were the producers, the director, the filmographer, the performer, the producer. Like the only thing that they didn't do was edit the film. They did everything. And it was really impressive. Micah Schroeder did a piece about his grandmother surviving the war in 1945. And it was just so fascinating how he had come up with all of this. And it was so engaging. Now there was, what, 14 minutes of music out of the 20 minutes. And the rest of the time was just him talking stories about her, audio recordings of her. I do think that's kind of how things are pivoting now. And I find that really fascinating. It's very alive and you can see that artists are really passionate and have really great ideas. It's shorter, it's a 20 minute video, it's engaging and very accessible to anyone and everyone online. There has been, I think in the past, this idea that people in Canada need to leave to have careers in some of the arts or that Canadian institutions have a tendency to say we want foreigners to lead these organizations or take the most important roles. Do you think that's still true? I really think, you know, being having been someone who never who never left Canada, you know, I will say that I was told go to go to Germany, live there for a few years and then come back. It wasn't the path for me. I think that What I really, really like about, you know, having, you know, I currently work at POV and having worked in Calgary, it's by Canadians for Canadians. And I think that what's, what's really nice with that is it, because that you've been in that community, you, I'd like to think anyways, that you know what the community needs at that time and you'll program things in, in consequence to that. So you can kind of really gauge what's best for the community because after all, what is an opera company without its community, without its audience? If you're born and raised in Calgary and you know exactly what your neighbor needs, what your community wants, and you can kind of build it based on that. Is there, and this is a very tricky question given the current circumstance, but is there something interesting that Pacific Opera is coming up with for the fall or sooner? Pacific Opera has been doing a lot of online uh, shows. One thing that we've done a lot of is we've created we've created three movies which i think is really cool and very ambitious i think that we've really come up with a really great product that we're very proud of you know there's there's two of them that are actually going to be coming out uh there are two lee hoibi operas one is bon appetit which it's a one woman show 15 minutes based on julia child so it's kind of like a little cooking show but the other one that I find really fascinating is a piece called The Italian Lesson, also by Lee Hoiby. And it's based on Ruth Draper's monologues. So it's a 45-minute monologue of this upscale New Yorker named Mrs. Clancy, who has 8 million people coming in and out of her door. But it's a monologue, so what you only see is Mrs. Clancy and then her reacting to all of the people around her, but that are not actually around her. Intriguing. Now let's get to the 
recommendation section. But first, we've, we talked about old favorites in terms of offers already. Is there an old favorite which you are particularly attracted to? L'Enfant et les Sortilages by Ravel. Ah. It's a small opera. It's only about an hour long. What I love about it is it's, it's also really accessible to the younger audience. It's, you know, it's a little, it's a child that, that's books come to life practically. Kind of starts off with them being a naughty boy and then going into this imaginary world. And it's so, so imaginative. And you can really, you can really hear the atmosphere that Ravel put in the music. It's, it's definitely something that I would highly recommend. And it's under an hour. Easy. No need to, uh, for 12 hours to binge on Netflix. And for a new opera, what, yeah. what would you recommend? There's this Canadian composer named Alexina Louis who wrote... Um, I'm going to actually put, make two recommendations. In 1995, uh, she collaborated with CBC and made this little mini opera movie called toothpaste it has two characters and they're and it's five minutes long it's short and sweet it's on youtube and it's a couple arguing about who left the toothpaste cap Mm -hmm. off and ultimately them breaking up because of it it's ridiculous but also really funny and great one thing that i absolutely love about it is it has barbara hannigan very, very famous Canadian soprano and conductor, and Mark McKinney, who's from Kids in the Hall, that are in the show. And then the sequel to that is called Burnt Toast, which is, an again, they collaborated with CBC. It's eight mini operas. One of them is about Barbara Hannigan and Mark meeting in the grocery store, like, months after they've broken up. And you, you have these moments of him remembering what it was like with her and like all these different scenarios of what it would be if they ran into run into each other in the grocery store it's hilarious also very very short one of the other operas i'll call them mini operas is called the argument and it's russell braun very famous canadian opera singer who sang barbara seville at calgary opera in 2018 i want to say singing and it's colin mockery who's doing the acting in the show. And it's basically him just complaining that his wife is always asking him what to do and he's mowing the lawn. There's a little mini, mini segment of Queen of the Night that Alexina Louis references. And it's just hilarious. And then at the end, it's obviously, there's a cute little twist to it. So yeah, so I highly, highly recommend those. (laughs) There's another one called, you know, Nothing to Do in the Park. And it's just people watching people in the park so it's it's kind of ridiculous but it's very very short and sweet you know they're each i think they're all under five minutes each i highly recommend them they're all on youtube sounds wonderful uh we are almost out of time what is the best thing about having a life in music i get to play piano all day Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, Kimberly Ann Bartzak, a principal coach and accompanist with Pacific Opera Victoria. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, John. Fascinating recommendations there from Kim Bartzak. As always, find links to many of those, as well as other info on the stories I spoke about today in the show notes. 
Next time, I delve into the urban legends surrounding Belgian music inventor Adolf Sachs and speak to a major longtime figure in music making in Alberta, the music director of the Red Deer Symphony Orchestra, Claude Lapalme. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share it. This has been Culture Monster. I am Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.